Yeah. The in the moment it was not so fun. <laughs> but looking back, I'm like, how absolutely ridiculous was that? But yeah, Regimental OD, the warning came out and I had received the O briefs before, so I knew roughly time frame of you know, I had like ten minutes to live, basically. And uh my wife called shortly after the alert came out, losing her mind. She locked herself in a closet with the dogs. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I told her, love you, can't talk, bye-bye. This is Vets in the House, a co-podcast where we sit down with military veterans to share stories about life, the military, and the good, the bad, and the ugly of buying homes. I'm Chase Blakey, alongside Nate Hyatt, and today we're sitting down with Scott Cryer, a paramedic, maple syrup cooking, wide-eyed entrepreneur and author, sharing some of his lessons learned on the home inspection process. All right, well, welcome to the show. We've got Scott Cryer with us today. Thanks for joining us, Scott. How you doing, man? Good, good. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to have you on. It's good to have you on. So, uh, Scott, obviously, we served together at Mass 6 um, for a while. And, you know, you've, you've been catching me up a lot of what's going on. I can't wait to get into some of the exciting things you have in your future, what you've transitioned into after the military and, and all the wonderful stuff that's going on. But let's go ahead and start off. Just tell us a little bit about your military career. Uh, how'd you get into the military? What'd you do? Um, how'd that go for you? Yeah, uh, I came from a military family. Both my grandfather served, my uncles, my dad, my older brother. Uh, my dad was a Marine. He was the first Marine. And, uh... Yeah, I actually didn't plan on joining the military at all until, like, senior year of high school. And I knew I needed something to push me a little bit out of my comfort zone. And so I said, screw it. Why not the Marines? They're the best anyways. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, joined up. Got a ROTC scholarship for college. So I covered four years of college, commissioned after that. And was lucky enough to go out to a 2-3 in Hawaii Inter Battalion, and deployed twice with them, traveled the world, which was great. Got out after just over four years, and then spent a year or so kind of figuring out my path in the civilian world, and I quickly realized that I was missing a component of the Marine Corps, and so I went back into the reserves for another two years where you and I met at Mass 6. Yeah, logistics officer. Correct. So, uh, yeah, it was... Uh... Good stuff. So Hawaii, tell me about Hawaii. That was like the one duty station I wanted to go to. I didn't get to go to. You got to tell us about it. Yeah, I actually put it as my number one at TBS as a joke because I I knew I wouldn't get it. Like, who doesn't want to live in Hawaii, right? And yeah, selection time came up and I got number one duty station of Hawaii and number one MOS choice of logistics officer. And I thought it would be awesome, get to live in Hawaii, kick back, enjoy the beach, pina coladas, all that. But little did I know the op-tempo of the infantry battalion Hawaii. So when people ask about Hawaii, I say, my wife loved it. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a common they, theme. Yeah, they work really hard in, <laughs> in Hawaii is what I've been told. They make sure you don't yeah. get to enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy it I did not. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good, man. Well, do you have any... Uh, very memorable moments from the Marine Corps, or a funny story to share from boot camp or anything like that? 
Oh boy. Let's see. When well, I was I was in Hawaii for the missile scare. I was uh-huh. actually uh, regimental OOD for that. So that how fun. Yeah. The in the moment it was not so fun. <laughs> but looking back, I'm like, how absolutely ridiculous was that? But yeah, regimental OOD. The warning came out, and I had received the O briefs before, so I knew roughly time frame of, you know, I had like 10 minutes to live, basically. (laughs) And uh, my wife called shortly after the alert came out, losing her mind. She locked herself in a closet with the dogs. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I told her, love you, can't talk, bye-bye, which she still holds over my head at this point. (laughs) I'm sure she does. And uh, I had the CG call me on the regimental OD phone. And he was like, this is General, I think it was General Simcock at the point. And he's like, I want to know what's going on. And I was like, sir, I was hoping you could tell me. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, okay, I'll call you back. And then the regimental perso, chief warrant officer, calls me and told me that I needed to do a regiment-wide recall list. Oh, man. Yeah. So, I was like, dog, I got 10 minutes left on this earth, and you want me to get in touch with 2,000 Marines? (laughs) He's like, yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. I was like, yeah, pound sand, buddy. And I just, I want to. That's crazy, man. (laughs) So, for, for anyone who may not know, elaborate on this missile scare a little bit elaborate on what this was what was the context behind it and and what happened yeah so we'd actually just finished uh deployment over in korea and korea had sent missiles into south korea and killed a few south korean marines and we were very close to invading north korea and they had been puffing their chest over the last few months about being able to send missiles to the united states and so we were on edge, to say the least, and yeah, just out of the blue, one sunny Hawaiian day, the emergency warning system over the whole island sent out the text message and that saying there was an incoming missile, this was not a test, seek shelter, and then the sirens started going off, and it was just pure chaos. <laughs> so yeah. were, there, were there any repercussions for you just hanging up on the general? I didn't hang up on the general. Oh, okay. That would okay, be okay. dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just I some cheap war officer. To live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, sir, I'll stay on this for 10 minutes and say goodbye. <laughs> yeah. I imagine that was one of those things people just kind of forgot about and you ended up doing afterwards, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, cool, man. So that's a unique, uh, that's a first. I don't really remember hearing, like, I remember kind of hearing about that in the news, but I hadn't really heard a ton about it. So. I didn't realize, I guess I just didn't realize how in depth and how real that was for some of you folks. It was very real. <laughs> All of us, like you read, you read like a BBC article or whatever and you're like, there was a scare for 10 minutes. You're like, oh, like that sucks. But you don't really realize like, no, nah, there was a scare. Yeah. <laughs> it was yep. legit. My wife was in a closet. Yep. Yep. <laughs> for know. a good uh, 10, 15 minutes, we were very convinced I was going to yeah. be turned into vapor. That's awesome. That's, that's super fun. Um, all right. Well, okay. So thanks for giving us that. So tell us about where you're at right now, man. Where are you living? What's going on in life? You know, give me a little bit of update. Yep. Born and raised in Maine. When I got off active duty, moved right back, uh, which is where I also bought my first house. And I've actually bought 
two houses at this point. Sold the first one, moved into this one that I'm currently living in, basically a mile from where I bought the first house. And I work at a contract pharmaceutical manufacturer, and I'm a licensed paramedic. Do that as a hobby. Wrote a book, self-licking ice cream cone. I'm sure there's other things that I do that I'm forgetting at the moment, but I'm a busy guy. You're a paramedic as a hobby. Yes. Tell, yep. Explain that phrase to me. <laughs> I've been working in EMS for 15 years now. Worked in it, it right after high school, through college, all of it. And it's just an adrenaline rush, to be honest. Uh, I enjoy meeting all the random people, some good, some not so good. But it's just a unique perspective that it provides you on the decisions you make throughout life. So I do it for the adrenaline and to get away from my noisy life sometimes, but Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about like what's the I don't want to go dark with this. I'd rather oh, no. a really feel good story. So like, everyone what's wants the to craziest go dark. <laughs> what's the I don't want to go dark. I want to go light. What's the what's the coolest experience you've had as an EMT? Honestly, probably last summer I delivered a baby in a backyard. Yeah? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Tell us about that, man. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a very rare occurrence in EMS. I mean, there's people that go their entire careers, 30, 40 years, and never deliver a baby because it's a very small window of when the baby actually comes out. So mm-hmm. I just happened to be on it. The call came in that someone was in labor. Usually we get there in labor we bring to the hospital and that's the end of the story but as we were pulling up the dispatcher said the baby's head is showing and the dad is panicking (laughs) and i was like okay this is real like we are delivering a baby today (laughs) and uh yeah me and my me and my partner quickly walked because we don't run uh over to her and he put his hands right underneath her she was standing in the backyard and the second he put his hands under her, the baby came out. Wow. Yep. Hut, hut, hike. Yeah. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I mean, we couldn't have been there at a more perfect time. <laughs> Thanks. That's wild, man. So wow. what, do you, what do you do when that happens? Like, you show up and you catch a baby. What, I, I mean, for someone, I'm actually, I'm having a kid in July, my first yeah. one. I don't know how this works. Yeah. Certainly don't know how it works there. Right. What happens next? <laughs> yeah, so it's, you, tr- you train for it to a certain extent. But nothing's like the real thing, right? Just like in the military. And so, luckily, I had delivered both of my kids in a hospital, thank God. So I was somewhat familiar of the process. I mean, I knew where they came from, but... And, uh... Glad, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> the, stork, and, so the stork, right? He came over, flew in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dropped it right in my hand. Good catch. Uh... Yeah, so the baby comes out, and realistically, the first 60 seconds is the most important for a baby's life, because you have to stimulate their natural breathing reflexes and make sure their heart's going correctly and all that. And come to find out, this baby had a birth defect where his vocal cords didn't vibrate correctly. So your indicator as a paramedic of a healthy baby is a crying baby. And this baby came out and did not make a single sound. (laughs) So for 60 seconds, while I was waiting for him to turn from blue to pink, I was 
absolutely pooping my pants. <laughs> but then, but then, like all the the vital signs came in just fine. You realize, like, oh, he just he's just a quiet baby. <clears throat> yeah, he just started. He looked fine, yeah. and he was kind of looking around and moving. So I was like, okay, maybe it's just a one-off weird thing. And thank God it was. <laughs> wow. Well, that's cool, man. Thanks for sharing that. This is a this yeah. is a real estate podcast, and we're talking about delivering babies. So, yeah, everyone, perfect. I'm sorry for derailing <laughs> us, but I just had to know. That well, maybe cool. I'll live in a house at some point. <laughs> yeah, man, exactly. It's all related. It's nesting. It's all of that, right? Well, cool, man. Thanks for sharing that. So you talked a little bit about Maine. You talked about how you, you bought a home, ended up selling that, moving into, I'm assuming you, you upsized, right, a little bit maybe because you got the growing family. But mm. tell us about uh, your first real estate purchase just describe that experience uh, how did that go for you um all, all the good the bad everything yeah uh, so overall in both of the houses that i bought i will say market wise i was incredibly lucky both houses we bought low sold high that is definitely not a common trend especially in today's market uh so yeah i don't know i don't know if i can give good advice about price-wise, other than get lucky. <laughs> but the the first buying experience was a very good learning experience because there was a lot of things that I thought I knew as far as looking at like a good house that, come to find out, I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> like what, what? Uh, what are some of those things? you want to expound on that? Yeah, sure. For starters, I think the most important thing is getting a good home inspector. And it's surprisingly hard to suss out what is considered good versus just your standard home inspector. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a billion home inspectors and finding a good one can really make a difference tens of thousands of dollars within the next year or two. Uh, our first house, we had a what I thought was a good home inspector. He came recommended from a family friend, seemed to be pretty thorough, picked out a few things around the house that needed to be addressed, uh, electrical sockets that needed to be replaced, stuff like that. So it seemed like he was, he was pretty thorough. And about six months later, as problems started to stack, we realized we had, we had missed the mark for sure. What else? So what are some of the issues you ran into? Yeah. So the first one that we realized we may have a problem, uh, we bought in, I want to say it was like September. So beginning of fall in Maine, no snow yet. By our first snowfall, which I think that year was in December, we had a waterfall between our house door and our garage. So the door that leads out into the garage. There was a waterfall coming through the ceiling into the garage. And I was like, well, that's not supposed to happen, I don't think. <laughs> and yeah, so my wife's uncle happened to be a general contractor, came over and said the flashing, which is like the metal piece that connects the roof to the house, is basically non-existent. The house was old and the flashing had never been replaced. So when the ice built up, it basically just moved all of this flashing and all the snow and ice that was melting off of the roof was now coming in between the house and the garage. That's not fun. Yeah, yep. So that was lesson number one. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after that, maybe beginning of spring, 
we had we noticed we had a lot of ants, just carpenter ants, which in Maine is like pretty standard, honestly. Uh, we had a exterminator come in, see if he could get them out, and he found out that the board that basically holds up your house, it sits on top of the foundation, was almost entirely rotted through from ants. And he sent me a picture when I was at work. He was able to put his screwdriver through a 4 by 10 board. Oof. Yeah. So that was costly. Yes. Uh, solved that problem. And then as we were solving that problem, and we tore off our front steps to solve that problem, we found out that the siding on the house was old siding. So it was basically particle board for a lack of a better term and it had it had been acting like a sponge for 10 years so as we tore off the siding to replace the stairs we found that our house the entire front of our house was rotted down to the insulation yeah what age was your house <laughs> it was only built in the 80s <laughs> oh my goodness yeah, yeah. so yeah you're oh, that's a lot of moisture man yeah and i now that I know, the 1980s was a big housing boom in my area, so houses were made cheaply and not necessarily to the same codes that we have today. There's a there's a lot to unpack with, with a lot of the things you're talking about. Obviously, from an inspecting standpoint, there's a lot of different types of inspectors that are going to come into that. And Nate, I'll let you talk a little bit about some of the different types of inspections that, that come into play and, and how that works. Scott, obviously, you, you learned this lesson. Yeah, way, right? And this is this is how it goes. Um, another really big thing though, that you brought up, uh, especially with the build you're talking about in this area, there's a housing boom and, and they were just cheap materials, cheap building going on in this area that the local area knowledge and expertise component is one of the biggest assets that you can have on your real estate team. And that is something that you waited into without now, now it, it's very common. And especially if you're in a boom kind of era, there's a lot of different things that go on, but I just want to point those two pieces out and I'll, and I'll turn it over, uh, Nate, let you kind of weigh in on those, but I think those are pretty critical. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I, you, you hit the nail on the head, making sure that you have a well-qualified home inspector and how do you find a well-qualified home inspector? It's really difficult. You think that taking a recommendation from someone who's used them before is a pretty solid way to do it. And, you know, maybe 70% of the time it is a, a pretty solid way to do it. But I think really where in your particular story is that he wasn't calling things out and saying, hey, you need to get this inspected. I went under the house and saw that there might be some issue here. You should probably get a foundation guy to come look at this. Uh, or yeah, definitely saw some some bug activity in the wood. Might need to do that. He should have had a moisture thing that detects moisture in the walls and uh, to be able to see what what was actually going on behind the the siding as well. So because the general the general inspector's job is just to find the basic cosmetic issues and the basic stuff, and then to say, hey, I also noticed these other issues that you need to get a specific expert to come out and assess those things. And without them coming out and doing that, there's no way that you could have known that you were running into all of those issues. So it's just very important to make sure that you have a qualified and very thorough inspector and that he has the other call outs on there for you to then inspect. And I would say it's also important a lot of the time when you're in that 
house buying process, you you don't want there to be anything wrong either, right? Like you've already you've already decided that you put the offer in, you're going through the process, so you don't want there to be anything wrong. And a lot of time real estate agents will be like, Oh, are you sure you want to get that inspection? It's gonna be another four or five hundred bucks, and those are all sunk costs in the transaction. So you're like, Oh, if we do fall out, then I've lost all this money already. It's always gonna be a good idea to get those inspections as you found out the hard way. It's always gonna make sense to do the the deep dive to see what the house really is like beyond the cosmetics and the the first picture that you're painted to really see what that house is to know what the product that you're getting is to be able to make the decision that oh this is going to be twenty thirty thousand dollars repairs right off the bat is that something that we want to take on or do we need to move on from this property and find another one yeah and and i'll I'll add to I had a really great experience with an agent working uh, with a previous home that I had where it, he knew he had been in this, the area for a long time and he knew down to each section of the individualized neighborhood who the builder was on each one. And he was like, you don't want the ones right across the street. You want one of the ones on this strip right here. And it's because they use better particle boarding in the side or not particle board, but they use the hardy board in the siding. They use like better materials, better foundation, better processes, better team. I know the team. They, You know what I mean? Like. When you have those kinds of people that are on your team that are telling you that level of information and giving you that, um, that's where I found a huge benefit in working with a, a knowledgeable agent. Um, it's it's like a whole nother level up. But I think your story is like, it's the same story. Everyone who buys their first house, unless they get lucky, right? Everyone who's going to buy their first house is like, I don't know. How do I know all this? That's just one component of things that you could not know about. We hear stories about people who more they run into mortgage credit problems or whatever, because there's all these different things that come. So what, what do you think was, I mean, it sounds like the biggest lesson learned from you was make sure you get in a, a proper inspection. You know what you're buying. Take, take a look under the hood. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely number one. I think both of you guys hit on the second most important that lesson that I learned was find a realtor that knows the area, but more importantly, sells houses in your market, mm. like your price range. Uh, our first, our first realtor was my wife's aunt and she's a phenomenally successful realtor, but she sells like upper class houses, the mansions on okay. the beach and stuff like that. And the build quality that comes with those is obviously significantly higher than your standard home. And our second house, we used a old family friend who's also very successful, but she sells houses more to the middle class type world. And like you said, Chase, she knows all the builders. She knows the good neighborhoods. She knows what to look for and all that. And we toured quite a few houses that we were totally sold on. And she was like, nope, absolutely not. I can't recommend this for you. Like, move on. We're like come on, like, it's everything we want. She's like, yeah, it's going to fall to pieces in two years. So don't worry that about is, it. Man, that is, man, isn't that like the best? It's the worst feeling at once because you're like, no, don't tell me no. But then you're like, wow, like, what did they just save me from? <laughs> it's uh, a really good feeling. So, Absolutely. And uh, yeah, bless you with your cough, with your, your burning, your maple syrup. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I still, you like, you brought this up as we were, we were beginning, but uh, you just casually dropped on us. You're like, yes, yeah, because I was, burning syrup that's why i'm coughing please please explain do explain yeah what, what this well is. first off i'm not burning syrup <laughs> ah, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> boiling syrup uh boiling yeah i i grew up as a kid making maple syrup 
our family friends own a huge farm down the road from us. And when I moved back, decided I needed some, some like relaxation time, I guess you could call it some me time. Nobody, nobody prepares you for exactly how rough the transition from the military and especially something like the Marine Corps. That's such a high tempo all the time to the civilian world where decisions get made seemingly at a snail's pace. And there's a lot more feelings involved. So maple maple syrup boiling is my, that's my getaway. That was a great, like, explanation of, yeah, man, I'm just, just hanging, around, <laughs> hanging around too much emotion. So I just go boil syrup and... It's great for now me. Now I just sound like a hillbilly. <laughs> <laughs> it is the most main thing I've ever heard. Like I just go out and boil syrup as a hobby. That's, I love hearing what people do for hobbies. What That's if I great. told you my boiler is made out of cinder blocks? I would believe you. I would believe it too. Yeah, a cinder block maple syrup boiling man. That's what you do. Look how look where you've right. you've made it. You've arrived. Absolutely, I'm here. <laughs> Do you have your own trees on the property that you tap to get the the sap out of? Yeah, of course I do. Of course, yeah. (laughs) What a dumb question. Yeah, I I have eight trees on my property, and my in-laws live a quarter mile down the road, and they have 13, so. I'm not going to lie, man. That's pretty sweet to be able to just, like, tap into a tree and make maple syrup. Yeah. I didn't even know that's how that was done. Drink a beer, sit in front of a fire. What more can you ask for? That actually sounds pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I He's kind of like selling me on it now. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. So, sorry, we derailed again. This is this is my nature. Um, but I wanted to ask you, so when did you buy that first house? 2018. And when did you sell it? 20, end of 20, no. Yeah, end of 2019. So okay. we were in it and for just over a year. And you bought your next one, 2019? Uh, <laughs> we bought our next one. The week before COVID shut down. So, like, oh. March, March 2020. Yes. What a nice. perfect time to have purchased a house. Sure yeah. was. <laughs> Good for you, man. What was your, what's your interest rate on it, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 1.9. <laughs> 1.9? Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of a 1 before. Yeah. I saw 2.25, yeah, but 1.9. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty wild. Yeah, I would not. I mean, why why ever refinance out of that for any reason? Never. No, that's crazy. Well, congratulations on that. That's fantastic. <laughs> what did you learn from your first house, or I guess what went differently for you on your second property? You mentioned a little bit, like the realtor had a little bit more knowledge about specifically your demographic. <clears throat> okay, got that. But what else kind of went differently for you? What did you do differently on that second transaction? Yeah. So we were. We were still open to an older home. I mean, it's New England, and the old homes here are stunning. And there's always some quirky things with the old homes in New England, since the ground freezes and thaws and freezes and thaws, it settles, and sometimes you have to cut the doors at angles and whatever. We were we were fine with that. But really what we were looking for was long-term living. And we actually did like a little exercise with the realtor, which I found... Could have saved us, I think, from a lot of our issues with the first house in setting, like, a must-have list, basically. So, for us, it was, it must have a yard that the kids can play in. And it must be off a busy street. And it needs to be in a neighborhood. And we want 
as close to an acre or more that we can get. And so it was just this list of must-haves. And it made saying no to properties much easier because it was a lot less emotional. That's awesome, man. Did you... I'm curious because I've been seeing like there's a, there's a growing trend in this now. I'm curious. Did you find properties on Zillow and send them to your agent or was it your agent that was pumping properties to you from the MLS for you to look at? Uh, I'd say both maybe. Okay. My wife is a serial realtor.com looker. She loves house porn and she, I mean, she's, she was on it every day. Okay. Uh, our realtors was pretty connected just with the housing market at the time. So she was aware of open houses and stuff like that. Uh, but because we had the must-have list, she only sent us ones that checked all of our boxes. So she really only sent us three, maybe. And Perfect. this one, actually, she didn't send us. My wife uh, messaged her about it. And... Yeah, it, it went up at went on the market at 7 p.m. We got a tour at 8 p.m. and we put an offer in at 10 p.m. Nice, cool man. Yeah, thanks. I uh, we're noticing a trend. It seems like more and more people are just when they're working with agents, it's easier now. You just show them what you want, and the agent helps you, you know, do the things we talked about earlier. Make sure it's a good, good thing to get into and work with the right teams. So another thing I want to ask you is, I mean, obviously, real estate investing is not really a thing. It's just kind of been a thing for you that you've done. And you've mentioned the benefit you've had in equity buildup, which is, um, I think, common for people who bought at the time that you bought. Very uncommon and not anything to predicate future looking for, for folks who are looking at buying right now. That's it's just not a normal market behavior. So outside of that, just in general for you, financial goals, life goals, uh, where does real estate fit in to your overall life uh, financial goals? And, and how is that going for you so far? Yeah, I... I have quite a few friends that are into the real estate investing market, worlds, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's And they're wildly successful, especially given today's market. They got in early. Uh, for me, the investment part is really just a long-term investment. Like I said, we got super lucky and bought a week before COVID. So I think we, we got $100,000 in equity in the first month, which is wild. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, it's just it's a long-term investment for me. I live in a tourist town, a summer vacation town, so I know that the price will always go up, especially from where I bought it. And if I can live in it until the kids are out of high school maybe, sell it and then go buy a house in cash, that would be the ultimate goal. Cool. Great, man. Well, what goals do you have personally right now? And I know I mean, I know you talked a little bit, you got a book out, things like that. So tell us a little bit about this book. What's next for you? What's coming up for Scott? And the Crier Tribe, what's what's next, man? Yeah, yeah, the book, The Self-Licking Ice Cream Cone, How to Make Better Decisions for Yourself, Your Team, and Your Organization. I actually started writing it as a middle finger to one of my old bosses. Uh, it <laughs> you was, Jerry Maguire'd it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's a memo! <laughs> <laughs> the, the term I had first heard when I was in 2-3 in Hawaii, and... It always got like a good chuckle out of it. And I kind of assumed that it was a Marine Corps term and let it go. And I mentioned it a few times when I moved into the civilian world and everyone laughed, but then everyone was also very curious as to what I meant. 
And basically, the self-licking ice cream cone is a decision or a system that you create that sustains itself and provides no real benefit to the organization, the team, whatever. And my boss at the time, this was two companies ago, was terrible. (laughs) Uh, Ended up getting fired, but totally different story. And I told him that he was a self-licking ice cream cone and he had no business being in this company, which looking back was probably not a good career move for me. (laughs) But like I said, there's a lot more feelings in the civilian world. So yeah, I started writing the book to kind of just get my thoughts out and maybe not torpedo my entire career for the future. And it just went from there and everyone that I talked to had more questions about it. And yeah, just grew into a almost 300 page business book. That's awesome, man. So that is you, awesome. And you just lost it, right? I mean, like a month ago. Yeah. Yep. One month sold about a hundred copies so far in a month, which wow, according to other authors is very good. I have no idea. Sounds but, good to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> pretty good for one month, man. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the ultimate goal would be to get my company off the ground, Black Arrow Company, and provide leadership training and specifically decision-making training for leaders. Great. Some TDLs in the business world. Yes. That's good. That's good. Um well, Nate, you got any questions that are that are eating up at you right now you want to ask? Yeah, I mean, my, my always go-to question here is uh, what is, outside of the book that you've just written, a very influential book that you have read or, I guess, person or podcast that you've really been able to take a lot of life lesson to help kind of bring you to where you are today? Um, what was something that's been really influential for that for you? Oh, let's see. Let me look at my bookshelf here. Oh, looking around. Is that... Fifty Shades of Grey I see on the top. <laughs> Don't be ashamed, Scott. Don't be ashamed. No, definitely not. That's my wife's book. <laughs> uh, I, I, man, I always go back to this book that I read years ago. I'm, I might have even been in college and not even in the Marine Corps yet. But it's called Blink. And it's about... It's, it's really two prongs. The first part is how we make decisions, what influences our decision-making as far as human nature goes. And the other part was that there's a lot of commonalities between people of every culture and shade and everything. And if you can recognize those, he calls them micro-expressions, then you're much more capable of connecting with a diverse audience. And it's, it's really been influential my entire career in that it makes being able to convince people of your idea a lot easier because you can understand what is what is their actual desire and not their business goal or whatever nonsensical corporate term you want to put on it that's great that's gladwell right malcolm gladwell oh man i honestly don't even remember who wrote it i read it so long ago (laughs) (laughs) I want to say it is. I want to say it's Malcolm Gladwell as well. Yeah, yeah. I, that's a really good book. Yeah. If it was, it was like one of his first ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think he, he builds on a lot of that. I mean, there's themes of that in Talking with Strangers too, which is another mm-hmm. really good one of his. Um, 
yeah, thanks for sharing that, man. I want to I want to end with one more question. Uh, we haven't done this yet, but I'm curious to see how this goes. Uh, so, do you have any questions for us with respect to real estate? Anything at all about real estate, real estate market, anything that's going on that you're you're curious about? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm curious about the market for sure. I think the market's in a wild time right now, and even even the best forecaster probably doesn't have any idea. But locally. And just like in your guys's areas, what's what's the market like? Mine's hot, but I live in a tourist town, and the market's always been hot. So, good question. Yeah. So I'll start, Nate. If you want to add anything, uh, definitely do. But I think this is probably the, the the burning question on most people's mind. It always <laughs> is like the market. What are we doing? Yeah. And there's so many things that go into it, and and I think you actually hit on probably the most important takeaway. If you take away nothing other than the question of what is the real estate market doing. Um, take away that the localized approach, because it is different everywhere you look. You you have macro trends, macroeconomic trends that are going to influence, right? Like the federal rates they're set at around the, the fours right now, um, and then the the privatized mortgage rates that you're going to get off of that are a couple points up. So right now I think we're around six two five as of the time of this recording, or maybe a little higher. So those are kind of the the rates. And as you look across the board, that's going to have an impact. When you look at a one point nine that you got as opposed to a six point two five. At a certain point, the, the economy starts catching up to itself in different ways because the, ho- the home prices are going to have to reflect that. Because a six, like I couldn't afford the same house with a, a 6% mortgage as I could with a 1.9% mortgage because my monthly, from a cash flow perspective, would just be a totally different situation. So that influences the market, right? That's going to cool this crazy <clears throat> burst that we were seeing. What you talked about, what you experienced the last couple of years, we all did. It was a pretty wild burst. Um, so that's on the macro level. That is a, that is a, a tempering. Not a, not a downfall necessarily, um, but you are seeing declines in certain markets from where they were, were jumped up to back towards what most people are, I think, are calling healthy levels. On a localized standpoint, every local economy is going to be a little bit different. Personally, where I am in Jacksonville, still a very good market just south of me. Um, St. John's County is, is one of the strongest markets. Actually, right now, it looks like maybe the strongest market in Florida. There's a lot of outside money coming into that area. Um, and, and where Nate is in San Diego uh, continues to be a pretty steady grower from what I've seen uh, incredibly strong market, one of the top ones in California. Um, there are, again, all the different factors that, that come into play, and there's different types of homes that you want to be looking at. Uh, you have population de- data, demographic data that's always going to influence it. Uh, but right now, from what we're seeing, and Nate, feel free to, to jump in and out a little bit more. We were actually just looking at some of these numbers, getting a kind of a review of it this morning, um, and what, what we're seeing still looks, still looks pretty good. But again, nobody has a magic crystal ball, right? Um, so, yeah, Nate, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you... You covered pretty much all of it there. It's just that it's all about the individual area that you're in and looking at the specific trends. And the best the best thing that you can do is look at historical data and maybe even in a way take out 2020, 2021, just rip those out of there and then look at the historical data of where you're at compared to where it has been five years prior. And that'll give you a lot better idea of how the market is actually doing. Uh, you know, in 2020, 2021, houses would sell in, you know, 12 hours, you know, uh, but now the disparity between that is if you look at houses that are selling or sitting for 30 days and people are like, why is the housing, the market not moving? But you look at historical data and it shows that this is actually still houses are still selling faster. There's less houses on the market right now. And so we're still in a very strong housing market as far as selling and buying is concerned. Um, so it's, I would say historical data is a really good place to to look to give you good indicators of what the market is doing, where it's going. 
Um, and Chase and I were looking at the Fed rates for the past 50 years, and we're still in a really good place, even with interest rates being higher uh, where they're at now, as compared to the last 50 years as well, and just looking at the trends of, of all of that too. Um, so to answer your question, nobody has any idea, but his, <laughs> historical data is a good place to look. And another thing I want to add to that, which I think is an important thing uh, for anyone listening, and if you've listened to any of our podcasts, you've heard us talk about this, but um, buying a home to sell in a year, obviously, Scott, you got to benefit from that because of the amazing economy. I actually did the same thing in, in, in around the same time period because it, it just made sense, right, to, to like move into where we wanted to be. Um, but that's never how I approach a home, and I know that's not how you approach that home either right? As a flipper. And that a flipping is that it's, it's an entirely different deal. It comes with an elevated amount of risk, a lot more returns if you're good at it and you know what you're doing, but that comes with a very entrenched system. Um, and you re- really need to know what you're doing when you get into flipping. We've done that before. Um, and it's, it's, it can be very stressful. There's a lot that goes into that, but as a homeowner, as anybody who's just like, I just want to buy a home, man. Like, that's it. You should be thinking long-term with it. It's an equity play. If you can manage the cash flow and you know, you can survive the cash flow, Look at the long term, and you know, long term, if you just look at the the value of, of homes in the market over time, they do go up. We, we can't make more space, really. Like that's especially in a little tourist town, like where you're at or whatever. So um, that's one of the things we encourage people is not only look at that, look at the long term, but also I love to look at it as Plan B and Plan C. Uh, we're called Course of Action Veteran Coa. You may recognize the military term. Uh, we like to have different Coas when we go into a place. I love to know that I can either vacation rental this place out if I if I need to move or go somewhere else. Or I can use it as a long-term rental because I don't ever buy a place wanting to really sell it. I, I want to keep holding places, right? Um, because that that equity goes up over time. So I love to take the course of action approach as well. But that was a lot of words to your question. Uh, but I, I thought it was you asked like the big dynamite one, so I felt right. like it, it warranted some more words. Um, but yeah, thanks, man. Uh, Scott, really appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, it's been great. Um, you know, great catching up with you as well. And best of luck to you with this new venture. Really excited for the self and ice cream cone and Black Arrow and to see what you're going to do. Uh, really stoked about, you know, your approach. And I know transitioning, I've, I've had very similar feelings of dealing with the civilian world and, and just the different types of mentalities that, that clash. Um, so maybe I'll take up pine uh, maple syrup. <laughs> to see if I can, <laughs> I can uh, woo-saw my way through it. But um, no, seriously, man, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. It's been fun. If you're listening to this, then you're missing out. Check out our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and website for more tips. You can find the link in the description for the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you have questions about anything you heard today, please reach out to us via text message or phone call at 858-633-1775.